We've seen very visible reminders of, you know, ways in which climate and air quality are connected. Welcome to The Jolt. It's Monday the 19th of February. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. Hope you all had a great weekend. Coming up later in today's show, I'm going to be looking at the link between air quality and climate change. It's a connection that's becoming ever more explicit, and it's one that could have severe repercussions for our day-to-day lives. Please do stay tuned for that. First, it's time to catch up with some of the biggest climate and energy stories that have been making headlines around the world. German energy firm RWE claims that the United Kingdom risks missing its offshore wind targets this year due to flawed auction design. The UK government overestimates the cost of wind power for bill payers, RWE told the Financial Times, and this summer's upcoming auction of renewable energy contracts could underperform. Last year's auction was a flop. No developers made bids for offshore wind, citing the low price per megawatt hour that was on the table. The government has since upped the maximum amount that wind farms can earn under so-called contracts for difference but an analysis of wholesale power prices and wind farm performance has still not been published. This lack of clarity is another worry for developers like RWE. Ukraine has been granted a loan of 200 million euros by Italy and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development to rebuild and modernise some hydropower facilities. The money will go towards repairs and upgrades at the Dnipro and Serednyo Dnipro dams, but will not finance reconstruction of the Kakovka dam, which Russia destroyed in 2023, causing an estimated $14 billion in flood damage. The EBRD loan has been granted without the usual environmental impact due diligence, which would be impossible under war conditions. The bank says a full assessment will need to be carried out within 12 months of martial law being lifted in Ukraine. Two of Iran's major fossil gas pipelines were sabotaged by Israel, according to the New York Times. The attacks carried out last Wednesday disrupted energy flows, but the damage was relatively easy to repair, sources told the paper. Iran has not publicly blamed Israel for the sabotage, nor has Israel claimed responsibility or commented on the attack as yet. German companies announced a record $17.5 billion of investments in the United States last year, a near doubling of 2022's commitments. FDI Markets, an analytics firm, tracked 185 capital projects launched by German companies in 2023, It's a number which will only add to German government fears about deindustrialization. It is yet further proof that the United States' Inflation Reduction Act, a subsidy scheme worth more than $400 billion, is actually starting to pay off. The trend looks set to continue in 2024. South Africa's energy transition plan fails to address power supply problems, air quality issues, or the impact of climate change according to an expert panel that advises the country's president. The Presidential Climate Commission warned that the Integrated Resources Plan, 
a strategy that's been put together by the Energy Ministry and is currently under public consultation, provides no analysis about how to solve energy security problems that have at times crippled entire parts of the country. The Commission adds that the IRP does not propose using the cheapest forms of energy generation, such as renewable technologies. The plan will be under review until May. And finally, Japan is set to launch a new satellite into space this summer. Nothing unusual about that, other than it will be made of wood. Researchers from Kyoto University have constructed the teacup-sized spacecraft from magnolia wood, after tests showed that it's particularly stable and resistant to heat and cracking. The idea of the project, which has been organised with the help of a Japanese logging company, is to show that alternative materials can be used for extreme applications. Satellites burn up upon re-entry, shedding aluminium particles that can build up in the atmosphere, according to The Guardian. More than 2,000 satellites are expected to be launched annually in the coming years, so if the wood tests go well, it could open up a new sustainable chapter in space exploration. That's it for your news updates today. Tune back in again tomorrow for another dose. Now it's time to get into the story of the moment. Air quality and climate change are closely linked to one another. Greenhouse gas emissions are bad for both. The more coal we burn, for example, the more polluted the air gets and the quicker the planet warms. More cars on the road leads to the same outcome. Copy and paste this formula across the entire energy transition and you get the same result as well. It's also becoming clearer that our changing climate will also make air quality worse if emissions are not reined in. A new study shows that a vicious cycle could develop if action is not taken as soon as possible. Climate change means more wildfires due to dry, arid conditions. It also means more heat waves. Both make air quality worse. Burning trees releases CO2 and particulate matter that can turn skylines orange, like something out of a Blade Runner movie, and choke people's airways. Heat waves create conditions that keep smog and pollution low to the ground, as well as triggering chemical reactions that make the problem even worse. A new study and data modelling by the First Street Foundation, a non-profit research group, shows that climate change's impact could roll back decades of policymaking aimed at improving air quality in the United States. I spoke with Jeremy Porter, head of climate implications at First Street, who worked on the project. I asked him whether the link between air quality and climate change is becoming ever more explicit. I mean, we, we've looked at a lot of the historic observations and the relationships between climate and uh, a number of different hazards. We have a flood model, a wildfire model, a heat model, we have a wind model, and now we have the air quality model. And I really think the most explicit statistical trend that I've seen in any of those data is tied to air quality. And it's not only that it's a clear trend over time of, of, of increasing pollutants or decreasing air quality as, as the climate changes, there's clear inflection points in the data. So we, you know, we put in all of these different uh, regulatory policies over time to improve uh, uh, air pollution and to, to improve the air quality across the country. We did a really good job, you know, and, and when you think about the government and you think about how difficult it is to get people to come across the aisle and agree on things, 
uh, the fact that we were, were able to do that so systematically and over time persistently uh, in, in increasing the regulation on industry, on automobiles, on other sources of pollutants, but then to to get pollution to the to the point at which we had really really good air quality, and we you know we still do for the most part, but you're you're seeing that reversal start to happen in certain pockets of the country. We're starting to go back towards what air quality looked like in the past, and there's been clear links to that reversal in the trends and. Uh, increasing climatological uh, outcomes and and measurements around things like humidity, precipitation, uh, drought conditions, uh, temperature, wind patterns, all these things that we know are tied to the climate and the changing climate, they're directly impacting both those primary hazards and the secondary hazards like air quality in, in a way that you know is, is becoming really, really clear now. I mean, you mentioned that kind of startling statistic about how air quality levels could regress back to what they were like in the mid two thousands before all of this, you know, great legislation and policies kicked in and, and cleaned up all of the pollution. Is this an unavoidable outcome to a certain extent? You always hear about how climate impacts have been baked in to an extent already. Are we at some sort of tipping point then, or, or are there things that regulators and policymakers can do using your data to make sure it doesn't happen? And I think that kind of looking at the trends in PM25 since about the year 2000, we, you know, we've seen decreases on nationally on average until about 2016 when we started to see the increase. And the statistic that, that you're referencing in regard to, uh, you know, our projection out into the future goes out about 30 years. So most of our models, we project out uh, about 30 years to about 2054. In this report, and essentially, what we're why we're doing that is because if you look at the global climate models, out about 30 years, there's a pretty tight clustering of those trends. And when you get out past 30, 40, 50 years, they they diverge wildly, and we see a lot of different outcomes. So we're we're really focused on things that that have less uncertainty that are to some extent uh, baked in. Even the most sort of optimistic of those trends. Everybody goes out and gets gets an EV tomorrow, and we're not, you know, using fossil fuels. We're decreasing CO two emissions. Even in that trend, out thirty years, it's pretty similar to some of the more uh, pessimistic views. From that perspective, where we are sort of baked in out about thirty years, that doesn't mean it's not. We shouldn't take a fatalist approach to it. I mean, I still think there are things that we can do, especially in the case of air quality. It really is kind of a secondary hazard. I mean, it, it, the smoke that we see that's driving up the PM2, 2.5 levels comes from wildfires. If we can figure out a way to mitigate wildfire risk, it may not be through climate. It may be through, through more manual fire suppression and controlled burns and things like that that, you know, give us the ability to make sure those really big wildfires that produce the smoke that we're producing don't happen as often. That's a different it's a different approach than the regulatory approach that we used over the last half century to reduce emissions. Uh, but it, it is something that we have some kind of control over. It, it's essentially how do we adapt to the new climate so that we don't have as many wildfires. Therefore, we don't have as much in the way of, of the smoke and the air pollution that we're seeing. I've linked to First Street's findings in the show notes, as it's a very interesting and important body of work. So please do check that out if you're interested. For a wider view of this air quality climate change nexus, I turn to Pallavi Pant, head of the Global Health Program at the Health Effects Institute. I think the last couple of years have been a very good reminder uh, for people in many parts of the world and ways in which air quality and climate are connected. 
it was interesting when wildfires happened in Canada in uh, last year, a lot of that wildfire smoke also, um, you know, got transported over to the U.S. And many cities in the U.S. experienced levels of air pollution that they had not seen in decades. And, you know, the orange hues in the sky and the, um, you know, visibility being poor is something that is very common in certain parts of the world was um, something people were experiencing for the first time. In other places, we had very intense dust storms in Central Asia and China, which again come as a result of like climate change that is driving these different uh, meteorological uh, events. Heat is another one. I think we've seen very visible reminders of you know ways in which climate and air quality are connected, and it is also starting to drive a lot of the conversations um, on how we think about these two problems together, and you know how we mitigate the and find solutions. I also asked Pallavi whether policymakers will start thinking more about air quality and climate change as two sides of the same coin rather than two separate issues. There have been instances where we've made certain decisions thinking about climate. I think diesel uh, as a fuel for vehicles may be one example where it made sense from the climate perspective ended up creating air quality problems, you know, locally. And I think that the policymakers in different countries um, are starting to think about these as sort of two sides of the story uh, and not necessarily exclusive of each other. And the way I see it, this really presents us with an opportunity uh, to think about, you know, how our countries and cities and populations grow and thrive over time, um, because the sources for both greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution, to a large extent, are similar. So if we are addressing, um, you know, those sources, if you're reducing emissions from those sources, we will be able to also impact our greenhouse gas emissions, for instance. And I think what some countries are starting to do is put in place policies that put health at the center of the conversation and then look at climate and air quality as two parts of like, how do we deal with this so that people can live healthier and longer lives? Finally, I asked Pallavi the same question I asked Jeremy. Are we too late to do anything about this? Just to put things in perspective, you know, no change comes in in a day, in a year, in a month. It does take time, but I think our policies and the actions we are taking need to be focusing on making the most improvements as quickly as possible. And I think there are silver linings. So in the U.S., there were reports last year that, you know, were talking about how wildfires are impacting air quality levels and a number of states and that, you know, it is um, sort of wildfires can be contributing to reductions in um, air quality improvements over time because they are getting more intense, they contribute to high levels of pollution. But at the same time, just last week, uh, US did go ahead and tighten its PM 2.5 standard. They went from 12 to nine. Um, so that's progress. You know, will we necessarily be able to meet it all the time? We'll have to see. Uh, will wildfires pose, pose a challenge? Certainly. But I think there is, um, you know, there is a the uh, undeniable fact that climate change is here and now. It is affecting the lives of millions around the world already in, in very many ways. And that um, actions we take can be grounded in science. We have a lot of good data, good evidence backing the solutions that are available to us. And if we use them, I think we will 
continue to see progress. Many thanks for joining me today. Kira will be back tomorrow, so please do tune in then. The Jolt is free to listen on Mondays and Fridays. Only Foresight members can get the full five a week. Not to worry, though, signing up and joining our ever-growing community has never been easier. We'll even throw in one month's free trial. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes or head to foresightmedia.com forward slash onboarding forward slash the jolt. There are plenty of other podcasts for you to enjoy this week as well. Check out the 50th edition of What Matters, the latest episode of Energy Enablers, and stay tuned for the newest policy dispatch on Wednesday. All of our great content is available in-app or on the website. Thanks to everyone behind the scenes at Foresight for making the job possible, and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the jolt. Thank you.